By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. Who is, uh, you're fighting off a little cold here, Adam, right? A little bit, yeah. I'm in that sexy phase of the uh, the voice, <laughs> a little husky. It's deeper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ladies, so, ladies, check them out. I know. Get a new audience for the, <laughs> for the podcast to increase our female listenership. <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking about this show offline, of course. We, we've been doing this for, it's been over two years now. How many episodes are we up to? I mean, by the time this one comes out, I'd say probably 90 would be my guess. Okay, so we're... Cool. we're we're approaching the century mark in uh, in our two years, and and we are as always super thankful to everyone. When we, I always tell my kids, I go downstairs to record this show in the basement. Hopefully, it's not a brag; it's just showing you how many of you are out there. When, when we record this, I often think, like, let's say we were doing this live, like we'd be talking to a packed arena. Like, you know, ever been to Madison Square Garden, in New York City? I'm pretty sure we would fill up all the seats with with all of our podcast listeners at this point. So it's it's strange. I, I talk into this microphone and we have all these awesome golfers around the world listening to us and we're we're super appreciative of that. You've just filled me full of, full of dread. Yeah, <laughs> not, no. not dread, but I, I just had a mini panic attack there, John. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if we were like sitting here on a desk in the middle of a sports arena and all these people are, are listening to our words about golf. It would be a little different. Yes, but not thankfully, anytime the, soon for me. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never know. So yeah, it's it's been close to 100 episodes for us, and we try to do topics that will last as long as people listen to the show. And one thing we wanted to do was kind of go back to our our core philosophy. What did you say before we started recording? What was your the point you were making about the episode we're about to do? Yeah, the core tenant. So you know, we mention this every single episode, pretty much. It would be a great thing to solidify for everybody but also if you know you're you're introducing other people to our podcast make them listen to this one first because it'll really get them on the right track and get them understanding what we're all about or what's more the most important thing in golf or most important things yep yeah so we always talk about the big three and 
we've done separate episodes on them, but I think what we want to do is if you've either been listening to the show for a few weeks, a few months, or you've been with us from the beginning, we just kind of want to put it all in one episode just so that we're all on the same page and we can make all of our points and then it'll kind of thread everything together. And if you do go back in our library, some things might make more sense to you now. Although I don't view this stuff as terribly complicated, but it is obvious once you know about it, once you think about it after the fact. But before you don't know this stuff, it could be a major, major light bulb for ball striking potential and of course, uh, scoring potential. Yeah, I think it simplifies things down as well. You know, there's so many things that we can focus on in golf. What's our left arm doing? What are our bodies doing? What's our psychology, our fitness? Our, and all those things are obviously important, but they all lead into these things that we're going to talk about here. Yeah, I mean, we'll, I'll start by saying that impact, the moment when the club head is in contact with the ball, that is everything. That's 100% or it influences 100% of what the ball does, you know, barring things like wind or bad bounces. How your ball flies in the air, the distance it travels, the curvature it has, the trajectory it has, it's all a result of that club head's interaction with the ball at impact. And so, I, you know, we call that impact interval. And we're not even talking about body positions during that time. I'm literally just talking about what is the metal doing to the the metal of the club face doing to the golf ball when it's in contact with it for that what 0.75 of an inch of space i think you would know better than me i've never looked into that it's it's around that it's not a long (laughs) it's pretty short it's a very short interval on time and space (laughs) exactly yeah so i mean the most important part of the golf swing is that less than inch of space down at the bottom it's not to say the other things are irrelevant you know but they're only relevant in as far as they influence that space that 0.75 of an inch yeah we always go back to whatever changes you're making to your swing are they going to answer those questions at impact more effectively And if they're not, then they might be superfluous, if that's the word we could use, or they're just not relevant or functional. And I think that's unfortunately what happens to a lot of golfers is you kind of chase your tail around like a dog for a long time and you're getting nowhere because you're not solving these big three or even the other four out of the total seven impact laws that we'll we'll discuss briefly. What are the big three, Adam? Just so we everyone who doesn't know what they are, we can just clarify this at the at this point. Well I'll go through the seven impact laws and you can start with the seven and then you you select the big three out of those. So we have ground contact, we have face contact, we have face direction, club path, club speed, dynamic loft and angle of attack. So those are seven things that impact that whenever I'm looking at a player, I might not be looking at all of those things at once, but anything that that ball is doing is a result of one or more of those seven seven things. I mean, they all go into the mix, really. So out of those seven, what are the three most important, John? Face direction, where the club face is pointing at impact impact location, or as you put it, face contact, where is the golf ball physically making contact on the face, the toe, the heel, the center, closer to the the sweet spot, show plug there, and ground contact. How is your golf club interacting with the turf? Sometimes it's happening before the impact interval, unfortunately, 
and sometimes it's not functional and that's where a lot of shots get lost. So yeah, those are, those are our big three. If you had to rank the rest of them, I mean, I'd probably put what club path in a close like three B with, uh, one of those, but yeah, I think those answer most of the questions. If you get those three in functional territory, you're going to go places in this game. Yeah, the other four, path, club speed, dynamic loft, and angle of attack, obviously if they're wildly off, you know, if someone yes. has an angle of attack of minus 30 or something, or a dynamic loft of zero and they can't get the ball airborne, then that might be the most important variable for them. But for the most part, when, we, when I'm dealing with 98%, 99% of the people who are on my lesson tee, we're looking to improve those big three. And then the other ones might just be for optimization, you know, improving the trajectory. Someone hits it well, but they want to hit it a little higher or they want to curve it a different way. So, you know, path, for example, that's just going to change how the ball curves. It doesn't necessarily change where the ball finishes. It changes how the ball gets there, you know, or the combination of that and face direction are going to create the end result. And so... The thing I would say with that is, you know, even with a minus 10 or plus 10 path, yes, that might not be great, but you can still play really good golf with that if you have a functional matchup with the club face. That's why I would put club face above club path. Again, not to say path isn't relevant, but. I put this in a, I don't know if it was an article or a tweet or whatever, but I always get the question like, what did it take to get to, to scratch golf and beyond? And for me, it was, it was all about club face control. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I worked on my club path. I, I got my angle of attack bit better with irons, but mainly with the driver, that's, that's where a lot of the big misses come from. You can't control that face at impact. And that's what I see on the course. I, I view it as like, if you're talking about all the seven of them, you're kind of like, it's like medicine, so to speak. You're trying to remove possibilities and get down to what is the core problem. Like I unfortunately I had to take, I'll, I'll give a brief story. My son had some horrible stomach pain a couple of weeks ago and we had to go to the emergency room in the middle of the night. He ended up being fine, but you know, the whole process was removing, well, can't, they, they essentially were trying to check things off the list that it couldn't be. And eventually we were left with appendix. And, and luckily we removed that one in the end with the sonogram and some other stuff. So he was okay, but it kind of reminds me of golf. Like you're trying to get down to what is the core issue by eliminating everything else. And with a lot of other players, like you say, you can usually peel a lot of those away, like even club path, like that tends to be fairly consistent for some players, but their face is all over the, all over the map or they can't strike it well, or they're chunking it. So yeah, it all really does come back to the big three, I think. Yeah, every lesson I have, whether it's a tall player in front of me or a complete beginner, I'm looking at which area in those big three is the weakest. And, you know, tall players are obviously, they're going to be very good at all of them. And they might be more in terms of optimizing the other variables. But even with tall players, you know, a bad shot that you hit, when a tall player hits it short, it's probably been a strike issue that's created it. Yes, there are other things that we can have like club selection, misjudge of wind, and I certainly track those as well. But in terms of technical faults, if if a player hits a bad shot, their hands come off the club, the ball lands short, we're looking at was it ground contact or face contact there? And again, directionally, if a tall player misses it left or a 15 handicapper misses it left, it's very likely they've just closed the face more. That's all. It doesn't matter that 
People think there are special rules for tall players versus beginners. They're not. We're all working on the same thing. We just might have a different vehicle to achieve that. It's funny you say that because I was also telling, I'm dropping all these anecdotal stories in the beginning. I was on a golf trip a few weeks ago also after the emergency room incident. (laughs) I was playing with a guy who was a standout college player. He played professionally for a bit. I think he was on the PGA Tour Latin America in his early mid-20s. And now he's in his early 30s and he doesn't play as much, but he's still like a plus four or plus five. And he competes and he has his amateur status back and does great in events. So he's still a great player. And we were just like having a conversation about golf and he has been familiar with some of the stuff, you know, we've done on the show and in my book. And we were just talking about that. He was honestly saying the exact same thing. He says when he practices, when he's evaluating his ball flight, he's going back to those three or four things, including club path as himself. He's like, he's like, I don't even know what else to think about. And as he was saying it, I was like, yeah, this is the truth. And even a player that good is keeping it that simple. He doesn't have a swing instructor he's working with. He doesn't play as much, but that is the litmus test he gives himself each time he's practicing and playing. And he looks at what the ball's doing and he's working backward to those few things that impact and then making his minor adjustments. As you said, whether it's a tour player or someone that good, everyone's dealing with this. Yeah. I mean, there's countless episodes of or interviews with Tiger where he's talking about strike quality and how important that is to him. Yeah. So all these pros, they're still working on those things as well. Now, obviously, when you're changing those things at impact, the only way to improve your golf game is to create a change in one of those seven things at impact. Usually it's going to be within the big three. So that's such an important line. You should really tattoo it to yourself that the only way you can improve is if you make a change at impact. Now, how you do that, yes, we could obviously have indirect ways. So someone might say, okay, flex your lead wrist more at this point in the swing, and that might have an effect on something at impact, usually club face direction. It could be as indirect as psychology even. You know, if, say for example, lots of people think there's some voodoo in psychology. Oh, when I feel, when I feel more confident, I play better. Well, that's true. But as an, as an instructor abiding by these rules of physics, I would always look at or ask, if confidence is making you better, what is it changing at impact? Because it has to. Like if you are more confident and you're hitting it better, it has to have changed something at, at impact. Maybe it's, for example, someone when they fear the left side of the golf course, they end up bl- blasting it to the right. And so by being more confident, stepping up and committing to it, they hit fewer of those right shots. Well, I would say, well, that commitment, which is a psychological thing, has just improved the club face delivery for you. And that's fine. You know, there are so many different interventions we can use, direct or indirect, to change these variables. As I said, it's always, it's not the psychology that has a voodoo effect on your ball flight. There's not some magic in there. It's a physics-based thing. The psychology, the improved psychology has improved your impact interval, which has improved your outcome. So which one do we want to start with? Are we ready to start attacking them separately? Yeah, I mean, I would say also on on top of that, just to really pound in the message that how important impact is, you know, there are many different ways to achieve a great impact interval. You know, we've talked about this in, in other podcasts as well. And if you type into Google Adam Young Golf swing experiments, 
I do nine different weird swings, which look horrendous. However, they get the club on the ball effectively and you see the result fly off. So that was a way of my way of proving that impact is what creates the result. And I just want to, you know, get rid of some arguments to, to this before they occur. It's not to say that they're, they're not better methods of club delivery. You know, there are some horrible methods of club delivery. If you do a happy Gilmore swing, that's going to be a, a pretty inconsistent method of club delivery. So that's on one end of the spectrum. However, you know, when you look at the tour players, there's not one perfect way of doing it. All the tour players do different movements as well. There's some unique variabilities in their swing. They all swing it different ways. So there's many ways to skin the cat of impact. So that I, I, I hope the people are freed up to that or freed up with that idea without saying the straw man of, oh, the Sweet Spot podcast is saying that nothing matters in the swing. So, well, yeah, things matter in the swing, but in, in as far as they influence the impact interval. See, if we were in the sports arena now with people, that, that guy who called you a nihilist would be standing up and screaming at you, you're a nihilist. <laughs> My overall thought on these things is that if you shift your attention to these things as basic and simple as it sounds, like if you have a keen awareness of this on every single shot you hit in practice or during a round and the focus is there on that feedback or even your intent as well, as you said, psychologically, what you're trying to do with the shot is, is can be very important too. If you place your emphasis on these three things during your practice and play, I can't imagine any golfer who wouldn't get better at this. Like, I can't think they would get worse versus, you know, everything else we're doing, which is, you know, we've done our episodes. I'm watching a million YouTube videos on swing theories and stuff like that. Like, yeah, that potentially could get you better, but I'd place my money on, on keeping your attention on this stuff and keeping it very simple. It's what I think about in every shot. Every shot I hit, I'm, I'm you know, in, in one way or another, I'm absorbing this or thinking about it. It's not as conscious anymore because it's been so many years of this. Even before I knew what they were, this is what I was thinking about. I think someone like yourself and, and a few other instructors communicated it really well. And then I was like, oh yeah, that's that's what that was all those years. I'm like, okay, now I now I get it more. This is what a lot of people have been doing in golf. They just haven't communicated it clearly, is my opinion. Well, this is it. When you look at the, the best players in the world, at some level for them, because of all the balls they've hit, it's unconscious. They're doing this yeah, stuff. Yeah, they're not even, exactly. They're not even, like they know if they struck it a little off the toe and they know that internal feel to get it back towards the center of the face. They know when that drive was a little bit right and what they need to do to get that face a little bit closed. They're not talking about it or saying it all the time. But as you said, it's it's subconscious. It's an athletic thing. Yeah. No different than how athletes adjust in other sports. Exactly. But this skill is not there in amateur golfers. Most golf amateur golfers are not even aware of these things or, you know, trying to improve these things. They're more doing, you know, we've talked about indirect versus direct changes, indirect things like changing your wrist angles in the swing. Those have very high correlations with changing an impact variable. Improving confidence is an indirect way of improving impact as well. Potentially, you know, you could. I'll give this argument against the confidence thing is that if you have a super confident player with poor impact variables, 
and you have a player who's frightened, so frightened that they've got a little bit of pee running down their legs, but they get their, oh, their geez, impact wow, variable. That's <laughs> quite the visual. <laughs> I took that actually as watching as watching a seminar by David Orr, and he uses uh, interesting quotes like that. So I stole that off Dave, I David saw, Orr. <laughs> I, I saw him present once at the PGA show at the Open Forum, and yeah, he was a very He's to the point type of guy. That, yeah. That he was very entertaining. That would make sense that he said that. All right, continue. But yeah, so if you had that very scared person, but they get the club to move through impact correctly, the scared person is going to hit the better shot. So that's not, the, again, it's not to say that confidence doesn't help the majority of players, but ultimately it comes down to that impact interval. And the player who gets the better impact interval will get the better shot. And, you know, so we have all these indirect ways, even strategy right? When we talk about picking a different aim point, what you've done is you've influenced path and face there. When we change our alignment, we change our aim point, or even mentally picture the ball going to a different place, we will change the impact physics, potentially, you know, not always, but if you hit a better shot, you have. So yeah, all these indirect ways, or we could go straight to the source. And this is how I like to do it, direct impact work. And that's where, you know, if I hit it off the toe, I'll try and hit it a little more off the heel for the next one. If I hit a shot to the left or the pattern is left one day, I'll try and open the face for the next few. So that's more of a direct thing. And you can train these skills. 100% you can train them. I do it in players every single every single day. So yeah, we have these direct versus indirect. I think all of them are tools, definitely. Well, I think you experiment with which ones make the most meaningful impact. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about doing the opposite all the time on this show. That's how I played golf for the last 10 plus years. I see something out of range, I do the opposite to get it back in range. That could be strike, face angle, or even how the club's interacting with the turf. I had to do that. I was hitting balls this morning on my my simulator. Thanks again to In-Home Golf. We just had their podcast with them. I noticed I was striking a little heavy today. I could just feel it. And I had to just change. For me, it's more of like a pressure feeling on on my lead side of my body to get it, you know, that club more ball turf first. But yeah, that that's something I've experimented with to get that feel that whatever it is to change what's going on at impact. So the more you pay attention to it, the more you're going to figure out these little things in your game. Yes, you could have these three different levels. You know, if say, for example, we're hitting it fat one day, well, a very direct level of change would be to think pick it thinner, you know, especially if you've got a deep divot that's too far behind, think of picking it thinner. You know, I sometimes give the analogy of imagining the ground is glass and try to pick the ball off without smashing the glass. Just take a little chip off the top. So that's a very instinctive way of changing it, very direct. You could go semi-indirect, which is the way that you went, which is, you know, focusing more on weight shift. It has a it has a direct effect on the geometry of the swing. You know, that's going to tend to shift the low point forwards, which will then tend to create more ground contact that's farther forwards. Or you could go completely indirect. You know, maybe there's, for example, I've had people who are, who are top, top, top. They're hitting loads and loads of top shots. And when I ask them, I say, are you frightened or are you trying to hit the ground, contact the ground? And they said, no, I'm frightened of it. You're not supposed to hit the ground. So that's more (laughs) of a psychology thing. I had this horrible fear of hitting fat shots for, I don't know, up until like three years ago, maybe (laughs) 25. I had that fear for a really long time. I don't know why. Yeah. And so- Always had it. 
Yeah, so that you know that that is again, that's probably a direct way of doing it, right? Someone's frightened of hitting the ground. You just explain to them, no, the club actually should contact the ground in a good iron swing. Super indirect would be something like you know, I've seen, I've seen lessons where players have the shanks. When you ask them, what are you thinking about? They say, well, I'm thinking, don't shank it. And there's this weird thing in our psychology where sometimes when we think don't jank it, we actually increase our chance of doing that. So I watched a lesson by a coach that mentored me and he gave the lesson, which was completely out of left field, which was to get them to focus on their breathing throughout the swing. And so they had to focus on the breathing. And as a result, that distracted their conscious mind from thinking don't shank it. And you know what? It worked their shanks completely disappeared during that lesson. So that's a very indirect way. I'm not a massive fan of those those ways of doing it. I'd rather work more on direct ways, but they can work. You know, that player is thinking, don't shank it. Suddenly you turn their brain off to that. You stop their ability to think that negative thought and they start to improve. Can work definitely. But as I said, very indirect with that one. All right, so are we ready to we are already talking about them, but do we want to dive into each of them separately? We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024 and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonder Lux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash SWEETSPOT. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweetspot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. 
Terms and conditions apply. So the big three, 95% of the time, when something has gone wrong, it's to be found in these things. Whether you're a top player or a beginner, 95% of the time, I would say, when you hit a bad shot, it's to be found here. Or that you could say the difference between your best and your worst shots has probably been a change in one of the big three. Or your best and worst rounds, you know, when someone says, oh, I've had a complete disaster, I'm immediately going to the big three and looking at which one has changed. Those big three are ground contact, face contact, and face direction. John, do you want to start with ground contact? Give us a few points on that. Sure. We now know, thanks to our buddy Mark Brody, who was on the show, if you want to lower your scores the most, a lot of that is going to have to do with iron play. That That's where we separate the most in scoring. That's very hard to do if your irons are not interacting with the turf in a functional way. And what's functional? Certainly not making contact behind three or four inches behind the ball and chunking it, or not even chunking it, but just too much bouncing off the turf. And and a lot of it, unfortunately, and I'm a victim of this myself, is that we're not getting great feedback when we practice because most of us are stuck with artificial turf. And we're not getting good feedback on where the club's bottoming out. You can get away with bouncing it off the mat, whereas on the course, that would be a 75-yard shot versus a 150-yard shot on the range. A lot of iron shots, and then the big problem we're trying to solve with iron shots is getting it to the green. Most players miss short of the green. I think that's a combination of not just impact location, but ground contact is because if you don't get ball first and then turf or very close to that, You're not going to get optimal spin rate. You're not going to get optimal ball speed. You're not going to get optimal launch angle, which are the other big three of physics of ball flight, sending the ball on its marching orders. And this is something I've improved dramatically over the last few years. Like really, I'm getting a little bit more negative angle of attack with my irons instead of sweeping. Uh, I'm getting ball first and then a nicer divot. Uh, I know divots can lie, but usually they're, they're fairly good feedback. And that is how you get more golf balls on the green instead of missing it short of the green. That's usually the big problem that you, you can solve with ground contact is just, it's hard. I think it's, I think with iron play, would you say that's, that's probably a harder challenge than face, face control with a lot of players is getting functional ground contact with their irons. Yeah. I think at the higher handicap levels, ground contact yeah. is the biggest difference. You know, you don't see ground contact issues with pros. I mean, occasionally no, it pops up, but they're really no, good no. at this. And this is why they're pros. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I think it's, if you're going from like mid to high handicap downwards, like this is one where you can, there's a, a lot of quick, not quick, but big strides to be made versus like eventually it kind of gets tapped out and you're making some like, you know, minimal gains, I would say. Yeah. I'd say this is the biggest correlator to level of handicap. You know, if I, if I mapped where someone is contacting the ground. So they hit a shot. I say, okay, that was one inch behind. Next one, that was three inches behind. Next one, that was two inches behind. Next one, that was zero. If you took an average of that, you'd probably see a very high correlation. And I I do because I collect this data. See a very high correlation between handicap and a reduction in that average score. So the closer that player is to zero, in other words, hitting ball and turf together or even ball and then turf slightly afterwards, that is going to really reduce your handicap. You know, Lou Stagner, our guy who's been on the podcast several times, collects loads of data, has access to 
billions of shots, I think, now on uh, on Arcos. They, he shows all the time that, you know, when you look at the shot dispersions of handicapped players, left and right, they're not too dissimilar from handicap to handicap. Yes, obviously, as a lower handicap gets slightly tighter left to right, but the biggest difference is in that longitudinal dispersion, so length dispersion. Yeah, with approach play, for sure. I would say, you know, when we get to tee shots, that, that story could change a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, this is this is not a driver or putter specific impact law. No. Please don't go no, out there trying to contact the ground with your putter. <laughs> and it's super important for wedge play around the greens and something that I'll I'll be honest with you all, I still struggle a lot with ground contact with my wedges. That's like the last I'd say that's the last part of the game where I probably have bigger gains left is I, I, I still very much struggle with how my wedges interact with the turf around the green. It's just something that doesn't come easy to me and I need to work on more. And it's absolutely, if you want to hit good iron shots around the green, whether it's tight lies from the fairway, rough bunkers, like you need good ground contact there as well. You can't apply the proper amount of spin loft, a lot of things go wrong when you when you don't have good ground contact with your wedges from every lie you know players who are hitting ball first then turf with their full iron shots if you put them on a range mat you put them on wet soggy grass or you put them in a a fairway bunker they're going to get roughly the same result you know there might be slight different spin differences things like that because of the wet on the face but the ball speed is going to come out the same now you put an amateur who's hitting the ground just one inch behind. You put them on a range mat, they might actually hit it farther because <laughs> the club's bouncing up through impact, reducing the spin loft. You put them on wet grass, that ball, you might lay the sod over it and it might go nowhere, 50% of the distance. Same in, in a fairway bunker as well. So when these players are getting very big discrepancies between their longest and their shorter shots, it's usually a ground contact issue. So that's where I would, I would look at improving. And, you know, to give a, a visual for this, it's think of the, the club or the soul of the club coming in like an aeroplane and landing on the landing on the ground. And it's where you contact the ground, where that club or pl- aeroplane lands that's really important. This is an analogy I give to, to juniors a lot. Uh, I say that, you know, here's your little runway, here's your airport, and I even spray it on the ground on the range mat. And I say, get the club, get the plane to land on that runway. If you get that club to land on the right spot, you'll never hit a fat or thin shot again. So let that one sink in. Yeah, you just don't have the opportunity to really miss it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, so that ball first, then turf. We probably let that sink in a little too long, but, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's good. We can edit some of that out. But yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so sometimes you need it. So yeah, if you get, you'll never hit a fat or thin shot again, and you'll be much more versatile off pine straw. You'll be better out of rough. You'll be better out of all the different lies that you can even off a cart path if you have to hit it off a cart path. Most pro because they're using high speed, because their low point is in front of the ball, they're using a negative angle of attack, they are going to achieve ball, then divot. However, I will just add that a divot is not important. A divot is not vital to hitting a good shot. In fact, I, I with lower speed players or players who want to hit the ball higher, I actually discourage divots. I want to focus more on a picking type of action. Even with that said, though, your soul of your club 
needs to be cutting the grass in the right place. If you're cutting the grass six inches behind the ball, you're not going to be playing good golf. So whether it's a divot or cutting the grass, we want to make that as close to where the ball is resting as possible. You know, not just hitting way behind it. And I know you mentioned wedges, John. Because the club is moving much slower and it tends not to dig as much with a wedge because we're using clubs with more bounce and other variables, you can hit maybe one, maybe even two, sometimes even three. I wouldn't recommend three, but you can hit three inches behind the ball. And because the club is bouncing up through impact, it's not going to be a bad result. In fact, one or two inches behind with a wedge can be a pretty good shot if you're using the bounce of the club and you're not digging in. Obviously, with a wedge, you don't want to dig in two inches behind and hit a bad shot. So there are subtle nuances with wedges or players who are picking the ball, cutting the grass. But in general, you're going to see, if you look at the slow motion of any pro iron shot, it's going to be ball then divot after, very slow, shortly after, and that divot is going to start very close to or slightly in front of where the ball was resting. Yeah, it's just that feeling of the club bottoming out in front of the ball. I think once you, once you feel that, it was a bit of a game changer for me once I like internalized that feel that really took my iron play to another level when I could really feel confident that I could be a little bit more, for me it was getting more negative with my angle of attack and, and wasn't sweeping as much, but feeling confident that I could hit the ball and then have my my club bottom out further in front of the ball and take that big divot. I have a higher swing speed so I can do that, but I did hit great iron shots, pretty good iron shots for years being a sweeper who didn't take divots at all. Yeah. And as you said, for the slower swing speed players, that's just not something to aspire to, to be taking the, you know, the, the beaver pelt divot. A lot of players just don't have the speed to do it. And if you try and do it, that's where maybe things start getting out of whack. And then you start chunking it four inches behind the ball and you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. So for a lot of golfers, you know, unless you have that tremendous swing speed and low point control, like I wouldn't think that you need to hit these tremendous divots to hit great golf shots or, or even functional golf shots. It's just not true. It's not necessary. Yeah, exactly. But you know, if you were practicing on a divot board, uh, whether you're a divot taker or more of a picker, you should still see that sequence flip over. You know, should, should, should still see that ground contact happening very close to that yellow spot where the ball was resting. You can also look at this. There's an indirect way of determining this ground contact as well. If you use the face spray, you can look at vertical contact on the face. Or even now, you know, with a GC quad, I know the Mevo Plus has this availability to see in millimeters how high or low you've struck on the face. And so what we would see is, or what I look for on my quad is a window of five millimeters to 10 millimeters low on the face. So it's not, qu it's not quite the center of the, the club face. So it's not say four, five, six grooves up. It's more the third or f between third and fourth groove usually. I mean, it depends how thick your grooves are, but most clubs I look at between the third and fourth groove up is a good sign if you're contacting there that you're also contacting the ground in the right place. So that's a, a, an indirect way of working on this. Yeah, I'm almost always, when I'm on a turf mat and let's say I was spraying the face, I know I'm heavy when the ball's like, it's usually like, high heel for me. It's just the ball's way too high. And I'm like, okay, that would have been 
pretty chunky on the golf course for sure. Yeah, high on the face. You can't hit high on the face without hitting a fat shot. You could hit low on the face without hitting a thin shot. And the, the time that would happen is if you hit so far behind the ball that it actually hits the ground and then bounces up into the ball. That's kind of rare. That'll be rare for our listeners, but it does happen. But, you know, you would know if that happens. You'd hear thud click. You know, there'd be a very different, uh, clear separation between ground contact and ball contact. But in general, low on the face is obviously going to be thin. High on the face is going to be a fat contact. So you're adjusting your variables until you achieve that desired strike on the face. Also, go to Google, type in Tiger Woods iron, maybe even add Mark to it. And you'll see a picture of the iron that Tiger Woods practiced with. This is eight iron and there's a rust mark. And you'll see how low on the face that actually is. It usually surprises people. They say, oh, I thought it should be higher on the face than that. Next one. I'll just give quick, you know, for practice ideas, I'll, we always give a shout out to the divot board. That's still the only product I've seen that helped me a lot with my ground contact when you're t- practicing on turf and you want to work on because when you see the feedback, it's much more helpful. And and you and I have both really liked using that. But when you can move that yellow line closer and closer to the ball, you know, you can get away with it a couple of inches behind. But having that visual feedback is helpful in practice. So shout out to the divot board. It's a great product for for ground contact feedback when you're practicing at home or at the course. Yeah. And alternatives to that would be to get into your practice bunker rake it with the back of the rake so it's nice and flat draw a little line in maybe with a t so it's nice and clear and sharp and then you can work on contacting that line making sure the first contact with the sand is on that line you could if you're lucky enough that you've got a fairway bunker you can hit full shots it's a great practice drill that's how Sevi learned the, to strike his iron so well you know practicing yeah on that, the beach. that's the ultimate that's the ultimate test if you can do that you're golden yeah. And if you if you don't have a long distance, you could just use foam balls, you know, practice the same drill with a foam ball. And you it's going to be frustrating at first. You'll hit a foot behind it. You'll hit six inches behind it. But you know what? Keep practicing it. You'll get better at it. Get the strike plan if you want to speed up your practice, your, your improvement as well. But those forms of feedback, number one, knowing that that's an important thing is very it's going to be massive for your improvement and then getting quality feedback. You get those two things and you're golden. You will improve with enough practice. All right. So what's next? Face contact, which this, so this relates to toe or heel contact. This has probably become less of an important skill over time because clubs have become much more forgiving. You can't become forgiving to a fat shot. <laughs> Unfortunately, if you hit it two inches behind, doesn't matter if your club is $1,000 or if it's uh, from a junkyard, it's going to have a very similar result. However, if you hit toe or heel, yes, the modern technology, modern clubs, they're going to reduce twisting, keep more energy into the ball, and you get more of a, a good result out of it. So you can get away with a lot more on, a, on an eye in these days. However, with that said, you know, practicing, if most pros that I see are plus or four millimeters away from the sweet spot, plus or minus four millimeters. So it's not much at all. You know, when a pro says, oh, I towed that, they've probably hit six millimeters on the toe. It's really nothing. Whereas I often see amateurs, you know, when you, when you shank a shot, for example, it's 25 millimeters or more off, off the center. 
So I see amateurs all the time who average 13, I had a guy the other day who was averaging 18 millimeters off the toe, wondering why his shots didn't have any pop to them anymore. And so, yeah, four millimeters either side is kind of pro level. Seven millimeters either side is scratch level. I don't like to see it go outside of that. 10 millimeters either side is is kind of functional for higher handicaps. I don't like to see it go more out of that. And you can get this data with a lot of the launch monitors these days. I view face contact. Club technology has come a long way. You know, we've had Woody Lashin from Pete's Golf on the show to discuss that. But yeah, it's still... A golf club is designed to give you optimal launch conditions, ball speed, spin rate, and launch angle when you access closer to the sweet spot or the center of gravity. So you can let the golf club do what it's designed to do, whether that's a wedge, a six iron, a hybrid, a fairway wood, or your driver. And that has a direct impact on your the distance of your shot and more importantly, the dispersion left to right and front long especially with irons. So the tighter you can make this, you know, as you say in millimeters window around the sweet spot, the more on target your sh- your shots are going to be. So yeah, there's plenty of forgiveness, there's plenty of MOI and drivers, there's ball speed preservation and spin preservation on off-center strikes, but I'm sure they'll get better, but you're still penalized. You know, you tow it off the driver, you're going to hook it still. You heal it off the driver because of gear effect, you're going to slice it a bit more. If you don't hit your irons on the center of the face, you're going to miss green short. If you can't strike it close to the center of gravity on a wedge, let's say it's too low, you're going to skull it over the green. So there's still plenty of penalties for not being able to strike the center of the face, which is why we are always talking about the feedback and practice, spraying the face or, or the other methods to start understanding where your tendencies are and train for it because the closer you get to the center more often, you're just going to score lower and probably significantly for a lot of players. It's a big deal. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, it's a big thing for with irons. It doesn't affect direction too much with irons. You know, if you hit it no, slightly to the yeah. heel, there's not exactly. as much gear effect there. But it will affect distance less so yeah, than you're not it used hit, to. You're not going to hit greens. Yeah, I'd say the penalty for irons is... The shot won't travel that far offline, but you could be 30 yards short of the green. And then, you know, you, you've now you're making bogey at best versus a easier par. Whereas with driver or hybrid or fairway wood, where the center of gravity is further back from the center of the face, we've talked about gear effect a ton on this show. Just that's when you get directional problems. If you can't strike the center of your driver, MOI will help you as you move to the heel or the toe, but there's still going to be gear effect and you're going to lose directional accuracy in addition to losing distance. It's a, it's like a double whammy. But yeah, they're getting better and better at reducing the penalty for that. It's still there though. Yeah, I was going to say they are they are getting better manufacturers when you tow or heel even a driver at still getting those to land in the center of the fairway. But I still see a high correlation. You know, when people tow it, they tend to hook it more. It, it changes your ball flight, definitely. You know, all oh, yeah. else being equal, a, a shot from the center that goes straight, if you do the same swing and hit it healy, it's going to fade off more. Same swing, toey, it's going to draw more. So I had an email this morning actually saying a, a guy said, Look, I, I was listening to your Sweet Spot podcast. I've been struggling with a hook. I've been trying to open the face more and more, and it wasn't having the effect I wanted. And then I noted down that, oh, I'm hitting out of the toe. 
And so he said, so I, I went off and practiced hitting more at the heel and now it's straightened out. So I just wanted to thank you. So, you know, he, he identified which one of those big three that we talk about and he was working on the wrong one for him at, at the time and he needed to work on the face strike. And uh, yeah, just by figuring that out, he improved his hook or reduced it dramatically. Yeah, it sounds incredibly simple, but you need good matchups. Like for me as someone who I don't draw it as much as I used to, but that's my pattern. If I'm a toe striker, I got a problem. I happen to be a heel striker, so it kind of counteracts it. So you have to do this detective work in practice, seeing where you're striking the face and paying attention to your ball flight. And and again, kind of like what the ER doctor does, you're trying to eliminate possibilities and get down to the source of it, which that guy was toe strikes. And that's a great solution to have. Some solutions when you get to them or answers are so simple and better. And a lot of golfers spend so much time looking for the answers elsewhere that they they unfortunately waste a lot of time. They're doing things that won't have any influence and won't fix the problem when it was staring them in the face all along. That's the beauty of these big three is that you're not wasting as much time. You go in, right, okay, I'm hitting bad shots. Which one of these three is it? Okay, you've honed in on the one you want. Now you improve that. It really shortens the uh, learning and amount of practice needed. You know, I, like, like I said, I don't practice as much as I used to, yet I'm a better player because I'm focusing in on these big three. I'll say while this one is not as important as it used to be because of the forgiveness of the clubs and things like that, it still is usually the leading cause of most people wanting to quit the game. So if I get someone come in saying, I'm just, I, I want to throw my clubs away, before I even see them swing, I'm thinking, and that usually I'm right, this is going to be an extreme strike issue. They're either right out of the heel or right out of the toe. More often, it's right out of the heel. So yeah, if you, if you want to quit ga- the game, if you're listening to this and you're at that point in your game, spray the club face, look at where you're striking on the face. You might find your answer instantly. Yeah, it's not fun to clank it around. And it is the the feeling that got me into this game in the first place was when I went across the street with an old set of clubs from my grandmother's garage and I struck a club from the 19, probably 40s or 50s. I, I somehow hit the sweet spot on one of the shots and it was so intoxicating to me. Like that's the feeling I still love hitting pure iron shots on the course and feeling that you can get away with some clankers now, but not extreme ones. But that is also like one of the greatest feelings in golf is feeling that in your hands when you just absolutely stripe it. I'm still thinking, (laughs) I was falling asleep last night. This is a weird aside, but I hit this seven iron last spring. It's now the end of March. So just maybe under a year later, I'm still thinking about this seven iron I hit last April array. I don't know what day it was, but like I just, everything was so perfect about it. The strike and the ground contact and just like the trajectory, everything about it. I'm still thinking about it. And a lot of it had to do with the strike. Like there's just something about when you pure it is is intoxicating and makes you come back for more. Well, you know what? I, you, I'm always working on strike. I'm always aware of it for every shot. But this recent week I've been practicing and I decided, right, I'm going to really try and improve this. I've always had a slight toe bias pattern because of the situation I'm practicing in where a shank would be deadly, you know, indoor golf. <laughs> it's indoor golf for you. So I kind of veer on the safe side. But, you know, it's, it's even when I say I have a toe bias pattern, 
I'm not talking a big amount. I'm talking five millimeters or so. But, you know, that's enough to just make it that little bit dead, a little bit less sexy. <laughs> and so what I've done over this last few weeks, I've really focused on let's get this more out of the heel. And as a result of training that for a while, I've started to hit more zeros. And boy, does it feel good. It feels so amazing when you hit that zero. So even the difference between zero and five millimeters, I can feel it. And even at my level, I'm still working on it. And that's why I want people to get from this is, yes, it's not as important as it used to be, but keep working on it. Never, never settle for less with face strike. You know, when I said yeah. seven millimeters offline is kind of the scratch level, we're talking quarter of an inch. That's, that's as far off the center as I like to see it go. I know some people might throw some outliers out there. Maybe there's a pro out there who hits it consistently out of the heel. That does happen. You know, they're slightly out of the heel. They hit it over and over and over. But even that player would hit it better if they got it closer to that sweet spot. They'd hit it more with more energy. It's the first thing my body registers on every shot because it's in my hands, whether I'm conscious of it or not. It's a big one. That's why it's in our big three. I think just basic like takeaway on that is always we'll always say to people is like spray the face, find out your tendencies, feel the heel shot, feel the toe shot, feel the high, the low on the driver. Start internalizing what those feel like. Try and consciously strike different parts of the face. Do the opposite of your fault. Like these are the bread and butter practice techniques we always talk about. But when you have those horse blinders on and you just practice impact as you were doing the last couple of weeks, you can make serious strides by just paying attention to this like such simple thing that gets overlooked. So yeah, that's my last statement on that. Now let's move on to what I believe is number one for most players, I I think, is face direction. Yeah, I think once you get to a certain level, once you get into single yeah. figures, this is usually yeah, the skill that you need most improving. You put me on a golf course with, I can always see the difference, like play with a five handicap, a three handicap, a plus two. Like once you start getting down to those lower levels and people are wondering like what I was wondering for a long time myself, what's the difference between that three and that plus one? It's the oh crap shots. And those are mostly a result of face direction. I just know that the golfer I am now versus six, seven years ago, especially with my driver, I think it shows up. It it definitely shows up more on the lower lofted clubs, obviously. I'm just hitting less of those, oh, crap shots. And I know that if I play with a three or four handicap, they're going to hit one or two of them that put them in the trees, out of bounds. Like It's just these big uh uh-oh swings. And a lot of that has to do where the club face is pointing at impact. It's either way too closed for a right-handed golfer that starts the ball left, usually going even more left, or for a lot of other players, it's just way too open and they're hitting that wipey, perhaps slice that is just right going right. You narrow that dispersion of how you present the face. I think that's that's ultimately what got me closer to scratch and beyond is my tendencies are far tighter. It's also the biggest variable from day to day. You know, we we always talk about this. Now that I have my GC3 launch monitor, I see my, I don't see face angle, but I can pretty much figure out what it is based on the, the curvature. I see my club path and I see my angle of attack. They're pretty consistent with all clubs in my bag. They're within a degree or two all the time. Now, how I present the face is far more different from day to day. 
Sometimes it's more open. Sometimes it's more closed. Like that's the variable like in golf. And the more you get more control over it, that's how you drop the scores massively. Cause then you start getting less balls out of bounds in the bunkers. I think it's more so on tee shots because it's not as big of a deal on approach shots because you have higher lofted clubs. Anyway, that's my big introduction. Yeah. When I'm in a lesson, because I have a GC quad, I have measured data for both face and path. And, you know, when people are talking to me, they will say, well, I, I hit some good shots and then out of nowhere, I'll hit this huge left one, this huge pull hook. And I, I'll always ask, what do you think has changed during that? And inevitably, 90% or more of people say they've changed their path. They believe they've changed their path. You know, they show me this big over-the-top swing where they're pull-hooking it. Then we start the lesson, we're gathering data, and that shot will come up. And I'll go, and, and they'll say to me, that's the shot I hate. That's the one there. And then we go into the data and have a look, and the path is never the thing that changes. It's the face. Yep. <laughs> it's the face. I've never, I've not had it where that path has been significantly more left. On that left shot, I, in fact, I've had so many where players in to out, in to out with the path, hitting a nice little draw, maybe one or two degrees in to out. Then they hit a ball that starts left and hooks off the planet left. We'll look at their path and they'll, they'll see their path is still one to two degrees in to out. Even though they report to me, I felt like I came over the top of that. And so often feel is not real. This is why measured data can help. But we look at the club face and the face is like four, five, sometimes seven degrees more closed than normal. So face variability is much higher than path variability. In fact, it's usually twice as variable. So when I look at the standard deviations on, on my data, you know, a pro might have a one degree standard deviation with path, two with face. And that just tends to expand out as you get to a higher level. So yeah, it is twice as variable as path. And it's so frustrating because as you said, it's the difference between a total crap shot and a total functional shot. As you were describing, I have a friend who had a similar pattern to what you just said. He was on the launch monitor. Really good numbers with it. He was hitting a seven iron. It was like into out four degrees, five, something like that. He was hitting, you know, four or five down on it. Totally fine, but he's hitting all these like low left shots on the course. And when he gets the face open, what does it do? It launches higher because he's adding more loft naturally. That that usually happens when you open the face. Ball starts right of his target. Nice towering tight draw. Has the face too close? That one you mentioned before. It's like that low left crap shot. And like as an iron like shot, like it's just, yeah, it, it's total junk. <laughs> You're not even getting close to the green. You're going to leave yourself a 50-yard wide shot. All because... The difference between those two outcomes were, you know, probably what, eight degrees. One was like six degrees closed and one was two degrees open, whatever it was. You know, these massive differences in how people present the club face at impact. It's so frustrating. But once you start to isolate in that instance, that player might be chasing club path or something else. And when you isolate, no, it's just how you're presenting the face. Everything else is fine. We can work on that one thing and focus on it intensely and kind of experiment with starting the ball in different directions and, and gain awareness of it throughout your swing at an impact. And that's where the real magic can happen. That's where I think the the big 
you, know, you say ground contact as well. Like you can't fake ground contact. Club technology cannot solve that. You cannot fake that. You have to improve that. And you absolutely have to improve face direction. You're never going to have complete control over because the, the pros struggle with this. I would say that's why they Jekyll and Hyde their rounds too. Like you watch him off the tee, like some days these guys in Tiger for the longest time off the tee. You know, he used to be wild and still is in the comeback in different stages. He hit these massive blocks. That is the difference. Even someone like Phil Mickelson, totally wild driver of, of the golf ball. But when he got it dialed in, he won some majors. And that was mostly how he was presenting the face at impact. Look how skilled those two are. And you're right. You made an important point about club tech. You know, club tech is not going to improve your fat shots necessarily. I mean, there could be some things. Maybe you could get a thicker sole, but it's, you know, I'd rather you improve the skill. Yeah, you get some game improvement irons with thicker soles. That helps a bit. But, you know, you're still going to lay the sod on a few of them. Yeah, but club tech is not going to improve your direction if your face no. presentation is not good. Because if you present that face, say, four degrees open, whether you've got a brand new club from 2023 or whether you've got a, a club from 2000, that ball's still going right. You know, and it'll probably go the right. If, it, if they go the same distance, they'll go the same amount to the right. Although you remember those dry, remember they tried to solve that with the drivers with like the closed faces on them. Remember those came out for a while where they were like intentionally closed. I I don't remember. I mean, yeah, I mean those those can work in terms of if you set up more closed, you'll probably present the face more closed at impact. But yeah, lots of people have the opposite, right? <laughs> there were some like gimmicky clubs, probably like fifteen twenty years ago, where they were like closed faces on purpose to be like anti-slice right but yeah this is something that you could strike it well you could have a really good club path with the irons that stuff mostly with the driver your your hybrids your fairway wood you leave that face too far open or too closed technology cannot save you yeah so when you're talking about iron forgiveness for example they're talking about heel to toe forgiveness a little bit of vertical as well but you're not going to get forgiveness if you present the face in the wrong direction. There's no, there's no such thing there. An iron that is left four degrees open will go pretty much the same amount right, regardless of what club tech you're using. Do we also want to just define quickly, you can go back. So this was in the beginning of our show. We had, was it one or possibly two episodes on face control? So you can definitely go back to that. But we also want to, should we just define quickly that where the club face is pointing is predominantly, we used to think it was club path, but where that face is pointing at impact, open or closed, has the most influence on the start direction of the golf ball. And it has more influence as loft decreases. So this is a bigger issue with six irons, hybrids, fairway woods, drivers. It's going to have your club path will have less influence and the face angle will have more influence on lower lofted clubs or like wedges like this is not that big of an issue with a 60 degree or 56 or pitching wedge like you don't have to worry about face control as much because this is not a directional issue but as we go to the lower lofted clubs on the course the ones that you're hitting farther off the tee especially like a lot of scoring is determined on how you present that face because Again, it's too far open. You're you're hitting it out of bounds right. It's too far closed. You might hit that low, that low screaming hook that goes 170 yards nowhere with no spin on it, just because the face was so closed. So yeah, I just wanted to get that point across is that as loft decreases, face angle becomes more important. 
yeah, as loft decreases, something called spin loft, or the difference between your loft and angle of attack decreases. So not only does start direction become more influenced, but curvature as well. So with a wedge, face direction is not as influential on start direction. It's still more influential than path. It's around about 60 to 70% of the equation. Mm-hmm. So it still is the dominant factor. But when you go down to a, as low as a putter in terms of loft, you know, a putter or a driver can be as much as 90% of the start direction yeah. is caused by face. I think Ping had it at like 80 to 85% for driver, if I'm remembering correctly in one of their studies is, is face angle with like driver start direction, yeah. something like that. I think Peltz was 87% with a putter. So putter is obviously the lowest lofted club we use. And so just from those facts and the facts that the ball go different distances with wedges versus driver, you can actually put some numbers on it. For for every degree that the face is open or closed, you're probably going to get about one to two yards offline with a wedge. So not not huge. You do the same mistake with a, with a 7-9, and it's going to be three to five yards offline. So twice as much. You do the same mistake with a driver, it's going to be maybe 10 to tw- ten to 14 yards offline, depending on how far you hit it. So you could say it's almost 12, 10, 10 to 12 times more sensitive with a driver than it is with a wedge. So you really, you know, with a driver, it's really the, the key to hitting fairways uh, and hitting your targets. It's such a huge thing. And there's a couple other things to talk about is just like, we have, we mentioned this before, like you can have any club path, even an extreme one. That was an example for years. And if you have good face control, you can make that work. Want to cover that a little bit as, as the important, because that to me is like when I try and isolate what's the most important is you said this earlier, you can have a player who has that crazy out to in swing. Let's say they're 10 degrees out to in. Is that going to maximize distance? No, but if they learn to present that face five degrees, I always think to the target, close to the target, but open to the path. So somewhere in the middle between those two with the driver, they could still hit that drive that starts to the left of their target and curves back because they had functional face control. Me, for example, I had, when I was measured with my swing path seven or eight years ago, I remember when I first went to Pete's golf, I think I was like 12 degrees into out. Like it was wild. And still playing off scratch, right? Yeah, I was still I was like a one or two handicap at that point. And I remember it was Kirk Gorey. He was like, I was talking to him about my game. And I was like, yeah, I want to get better in tournaments. He's like, uh, I think you're going to want to work on that club bath. I'm like, noted. But I was still able to hit. Granted, they were bigger hooks. But because I had decent face control, I was still able to hit decent shots. Now, fast forward seven, eight years later, I've worked on my path a lot. And now my path with my irons is closer to like three, four, five degrees into out. And with my driver, it's only one degree or sometimes zero. So that has helped reduce curvature. But all along, I was still hitting decent shots because I was able to get that face pointing between the target and the path of the club. So anything can work is my point. If you have good face control, there's obviously preferences, but you can get to be a pretty damn good golfer. If you just have that skill and let's say your, your club path was a little, you know, out of whack and extreme. Yeah. Your, your club face does not have to be square to the target yeah, to play I'm great glad golf. <laughs> and that's another one. Yeah. You run with that. Cause I hate when people say, oh, a square club. I'm like, for most people, if they presented square at impact, like they'd hit bad shots a lot of the time. So yeah, go run with that for a bit. 
Yeah, your club face does not need to be square to the target at impact to play good golf. In fact, for most online shots, you'll want it somewhere between the path and the target. So what does that mean? Well, say your swing path, your club path is six degrees in to out. Okay, so you're swinging from the inside six degrees. You'll probably need to present that face three degrees to the right of the target. So it's somewhere in between. So you can imagine if the target is zero and your club is moving six right, you need the club face three right in order to hit a functional draw. Any more closed than that, it's going to hook. Any more open than that, you're going to hit more of a block shot. So while that sounds complicated and people might panic with that information and think, well, oh my God, I don't know what to do then. How, how am I supposed to play golf if I don't have these numbers in front of me? There's actually a simple algorithm that you can follow. And that is all else being equal. If the face is more left, the result will be more left. And if the face is more right, the result will be more right. So when I'm hitting shots, when I'm practicing, I don't actually pay attention too much to the numbers anymore. I have them there for me if I need them. But what I'm doing is I'm hitting a ball and I said, ah, that one finished too far left. I need to open the face more for the next one. Then I'll hit another shot and just keep calibrating from there until I hit my desired shot. I don't need to know the exact number in order to do that. I just need to use that simple algorithm. More right face equals more right result, all else being equal. Yeah, the way I always thought of it, that gave me some comfort. And you want to live on the opposite side of your path. So for me, with that extreme into out path for a long time, it was simple for me. I'm like, just flash the face open. And if it wasn't open enough, I'd hit that screaming hook. So for me, a lot of my practice was just really not even in the beginning working on my club path so much. It was more developing face control and just being comfortable presenting the face open to my target. So it could start to the right and curve back. And, and the, the same would be different than someone who is comfortable with an out to in swing path. You need to feel a closed face to your target, not so closed or else you're going to hit a, a double cross hook, which I'll get into in a second. I want to talk about double crosses. I love to keep it simple with that. And that's how I played golf for a long time. And I don't play as much thinking open face anymore, but I did for a really long time just because I love opposites helped me so much, like doing the opposite of what was the problem, which my bad swing was. If the face was too closed, low hook, can't live with that shot. Just not a, I'll hit the straight block. I can live with that shot. But I mean, I think Hogan was the original, hated the hook so much. You can't live with that shot. So for me, it was just practicing open face a lot. Anything I could do to keep that, have focus on where my face was, the orientation in my swing through the impact interval. I just, I really thought about it a lot. And what did that do? I mean, I probably made some grip adjustments. A lot of it was the rotation of my forearms and how I was orienting the club face, probably some wrist angle stuff in there that I wasn't even thinking about. If you have a keen, no different than I was saying about impact location, if you have a keen focus on that skill and not all the extraneous nonsense that the golf world might get you to think about, good things can really happen. That's how do you get to the promised land is like you get more control over the face. There's just no question about it to me. Yeah. And I'll add to that that, you know, setup and impact are not the same. So when we talk about a more open or more closed face, we're talking about at impact. 
Now, setup can influence impact, but you can have 100 players set up with a very square face at address. They swing back and they all present the face differently at impact. What you have to do is just change change those things depending on what you need more of. And that idea that I talked about that you need, in air quotes, a square face to play good golf, that held me back for so many years because I was so obsessed with, oh, I need this face to be perfectly square at address. Now, if you look at me play, I actually set up with the face open at address, which is not textbook, but that's what I need in order to help me present it more open at impact. So, you know, it's more open at address, which helps me get it more open at impact, which helps tame my draw shot. And so for me to present the face square or even to set up with the club face square would make me a worse golfer. So you do not need it square at setup. You certainly don't need it square at impact. You just need to follow those simple algorithms. Yeah, I would say, I mean, what club path would you need to like really be focusing on square at impact? That'd be less than three degrees, right? Something like that. No, you need a square path to have a square face function for you. I mean, you need a square path, but I'm just saying like just to keep it in play because, you know, sometimes your path's going to be a little into out and, and a little out to in if you're if you're more neutralized. But most golfers, their their path is not – my point is, is like most golfers have paths of like four, five, six, seven degrees or more. And if you are thinking about square face at impact, you know, if you're seven degrees out to in – you're going to be hitting a shot that kind of starts probably a little left because of the swing path with your driver of the target line, then just slices to the right. With a driver, or if, if, you're, if your yeah. path was two degrees either side, that is probably the limit to what, what yeah. a functional face would stay on the golf course. Because with a driver, yeah. for example, path two degrees into out, if your face is square to the target, you'll actually hook it 24, 25 yards offline. But you can get away with that. Yeah, it'd be in the rough. Yeah, so you get away yeah, with it, bit. but yeah. So that yeah. player who's got a two degree in to out path, they'd get away with square. They'd hit their best shots with the club face being maybe one degree open. Yeah, and they'd hit blocks to the on the right side of the fairway with a, a, a square path to the face, which would be too open, two degrees open. My point was is for everyone else, you know, who has a more extreme path, like they'd be dead in the water. They'd be hitting oh, those yeah. huge banana slices or hooks. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to bring up about face control is we've talked about working the ball in both directions on this show before. We don't love it. We've had Scott Fawcett on. He's a huge champion of of playing one shot shape. There's plenty of pro golfers who are kind of doing it now, but I, I think more about regular golfers. And the main thing that I witness anecdotally when I try and change, like if you asked me to hit a cut, I could get extreme and, and present an out-to-in swing path, I could change my swing path. And I think a lot of golfers could if you if you taught them how to. But what would be the problem for me as someone who's comfortable hitting that draw is that now my club face control would get confused because I'm used to presenting my face open right of my target because that's where I need to live for it to go right to left. Now, if I go in the opposite direction... Now you're asking me to present the face to the other side of the target, and that's going to confuse me. And that's where double crosses come from. That's when like, if I tried to hit a fade and I get that face really closed, that ball's not going left to right. If it gets outside of my path, now I'm hitting left going left. And that is the destroyer of golf rounds. 
And you could argue a lot of pro golfers, I'm not going to start saying names because I'll probably get skewered for this, but I, I see a lot of players on tour, big names. I wonder like if they just played like their stock fade, like Dustin Johnson did that eventually settle on that. Yeah, they can work it in both directions, but they, for every time they do that, there's always that one shot where they hit the double cross and it's out of, I mean, the results are so bad because you're aimed for the fade. So you're aimed a little bit left and then it goes left and further left. It's off the planet. So that's why I think most golfers can't work it in both directions because their club face gets super confused once you go outside of your comfort zone of club path because you develop your patterns based on your path usually and and how to present the face. And if you keep changing it back and forth, like I just think it's too confusing. And that's not to say that like some people have messaged me. They're like, what do you think about a fade off the tee and a draw with my irons? I'm like, that's great. Do that. If it's one shape and you're not trying to shape it both ways, like I think that makes perfect sense. Like that's kind of what I'm doing now. I hit straightish drives, maybe like straight blocks. I'm like, one, two degrees into out, maybe zero, and then the face is a little open. Those are fine shots. I'm not trying to fade it, but like that's just the pattern I'm working with because I'm hitting so up on it now. But I'm just drawing my irons and I'm doing that and I'm just comfortable doing that all the time. So yeah, that's my little reminder. We've talked about double crosses and working the ball in both directions. And I think most of it has to do with, I would call it club face confusion is, is the problem. Well, I'd say that if you if you're trying to change your shot shape, all of a sudden you have to manage two variables because your, exactly, your yes. path and <laughs> yeah, your you face two, you're yeah, having to manage. Exactly. And also when you change your path, you usually change ground contact. So it, it tends to be that changing path is a very advanced thing that can in is thrown a span or opening that Pandora's box. So it's something that I don't tend to do on the golf course. I would just say stick with managing the face. You know, take your draw shape or your fade shape and keep using that algorithm of opening or closing the face until it's des- as desired. Turn that slice into a uh, into a workable fade. Turn that hook into a workable draw just by managing the face. That's the easiest way to play golf, I think. Absolutely. I mean, we saved it for last, but I guess it depends on the level of golfer because as we said earlier with ground contact, like that's more of a problem that gets solved for the 25, 15, 10 handicap. Like that's how you drop a lot of strokes because you're just hitting more functional iron shots and wedge shots. You're getting on the green more often, more pars, less doubles. But eventually, like when you want to reach the highest level of ball striking, that becomes a question of club face control, in my opinion, for most players. Of course, there are exceptions. Yeah, I think, you know, if if you just picked one of those three and worked on improving it, you would get better, definitely. Oh, but yeah. But you can, out of those three, you can find which one is costing you the most shots. And that's part of when I go on, on, on the course with a player, I'm looking at when they miss the, their target. You know, if they hit it more than 10 yards short or 10 yards long or 10 yards left or 10 yards right, I'm, at, I'm looking at why. Why was that the case? Mm-hmm. First, I eliminate any mental errors, like did they have a poor club selection? Did they misjudge the wind? And then you're left with the technical errors. Did they tow it and or fat it, which caused it to go short? Or did if they miss left or right, it was a face direction issue? And then so fr- from there, we can come off that round of golf and say, well, look, you're losing more shots from ground contact errors. 
Now that helps you in terms of the efficiency of your practice. You've got that data. You say, if I improve my ground contact, then I am going to improve my golf more rapidly. I'm going to shoot lower scores more rapidly. So yeah, don't panic by picking the wrong one to work on. I mean, work on them all. But if you pick the one that's costing you the most shots, you'll get bigger bang for your buck at your practice time. Yeah, when you the clues are hiding in plain sight, but you have to like put on the right, I don't know, lens, pair of glasses, 3D glasses, whatever they are. Once you look at it like very clearly and more simplified, it becomes very obvious. That doesn't mean it's going to be also like very easy to solve it overnight. I'm telling you, this is a, a decade long process for me of refining these things, even more 25 years if you're, if I'm being totally honest. The simpler you can make it and the more efficient you can be with the feedback you see on the course and in practice, the quicker you will get to the right answer. But there aren't many to choose from. There's three we're saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, the app that I have coming out at some point, please don't ask me about it or email me about it. It could be a year, it could be two years, it could be three months. I don't know when it's coming out, but it's going to be very simple. After you hit a shot, if you hit a bad one, how was your ground contact? How was your face contact? How was your face direction? That simple. And from there, the data will gather up and say, you need to work on this one. It's going to be so simple, but so practical. Shall we summarize this, John? Summarize yeah, everything? I think we've, we've, we've covered it all. So after every single shot, you should be asking yourself, how was my ground contact? Was it fat or thin or just right? How was my face contact? Was it toe or heel or was it good enough? How was my face direction? Was it left or right or good enough? If you hit it 10 yards left, don't worry about it. That's a tall level miss and most irons. Noting down then which one is costing you the most shots and then improving that area through a mix of either technique changes, skill changes, or even strategy interventions, psychological interventions. As we said, you could have very direct changes to these things. Like if I want to change my face direction... I just think of the face being more open or closed, and I do that as in a practice swing. If I want to hit more out of the toe or heel, I just try to hit more out of the toe or the heel. So that's a very direct intervention. Or you can, if you're struggling with that approach, you can have some technique interventions, looking at your swing changing. It could be as simple as something like a dress position or as complex as something like wrist angle changes. How do you know which one you need to work on? Well, you know, you can hear and, and the sound of the strike. Generally, distant misses, long or short, are going to be fat, thin, or toe or heel. More likely to be fat or thin with how forgiving things are these days. Directional misses are going to be more face-related. Yes, you can have, if you hit a shot that shoots 90 degrees right, look towards your strike for that because it's either a toe or heel shank. So it's very unlike, <laughs> you know, when we talk about face direction, your face variability, yes, you could hit 20 yards left, 20 yards right. But if you shoot one 90 degrees right, that you haven't presented the face 90 degrees open. You've probably shanked or toe shanked it. <laughs> yeah, you'd break your wrist if you did that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anything more to add to that, John? No, I mean, I think we've said it all. It's just the more simple you can keep it and the more disciplined you can go through that checklist. I mean, I go through as much as we talk about it on the show, it's in my book, it's in your book, it's in all your online programs. Like I'm thinking about this all the time. Yeah. I'm checking in with it. And it's not something that's dominating my mind. It's more in the background. Oh, and then me, when I need front. to ask, yeah, 
Meaning like it's not when, I, when I'm playing golf, it's like I'm absorbing these like little clues as they occur. And then if something's more extreme, you know, that tee shot that was very far right or very far left, I'm like, okay, now you've got some face angle problems you got to think about here. I think it's, I always go back to my uh, mention of like a good poker player reading the flop and the river. Like once you start learning all this stuff and paying attention to it more, as it appears to you on the golf course and in practice, you can quickly react to it and be more comfortable with it. In the beginning, you're going to have to, I think, expend more mental energy. And you should because these are that important. So, yeah, we, you can go back to a lot of the episodes we've talked about, whether they're practice ideas. We've done episodes on how to improve your face control, different drills or ideas, or improve your impact tendencies. But this is like our core philosophy, as we said in the, in the beginning of the show. So we just wanted to like get this out there as kind of our, some people have like pinned tweets or on their Instagram profiles. Like this is our pinned podcast episode is, is how I would describe this. Yeah. I'd say from my teaching experience, most golfers don't think like this. Like for, for you and I, it's very, it's almost the level of unconscious. I'm still very aware of it after each shot. All right. I've hit a, a little out of the toe on that. So I'm constantly thinking about these, but most golfers that I, I speak to after a bad shot, they'll say, Oh, that was a bad shot. I'll say, okay. My head was down too much. Yeah. Something to well, totally different. <laughs> yeah. I will say, I used to ask the question, so what do you need to change for the next shot to make the next shot better? And then they would give me something irrelevant, like, oh, I need to keep my head down, keep my left arm straight. I need to be more confident or something like that. So now my question is, what do you need to change in the big three to make that a better shot. And that gets their brain really absorbed in that. And if a player can do that themselves, they're onto a winning strategy for improvement. Yeah, it's a better trail of breadcrumbs to your golf, whatever, top of the mountain, whatever the heck you want to call it. It leads you quicker to the, or more efficiently to the promised land, yeah. which again is functional. I always like to use the word functional. You're never going to solve all three of these things. It's a constant battle between all three of them. You're yeah. always fighting against them and keeping them in check. I am. I know you are. Like it, there, There's different, obviously, windows that we fight them with. A more beginner player is going to have far wider tendencies in all three of these categories, whereas the, the, the advanced player is going to have tighter windows, but they're still changing from day to day. It's a it's a game that you never get control all of them. You just get them a little, little better each time. That is golf. I always use the analogy of plate spinning. I so say you've got these three plates, these big three plates, and some days you're just standing back watching in amazement as they're all spinning themselves. But for the most part, you're having to pay attention to one of those that's falling down that needs you to jump in and spin it and get it going again. So it could be face contact, could be ground contact. Sometimes there could be two variables and you have to pick one, the one that's falling the most. Or in some cases, you know, I can do things where I can spin three variables at once in my head. You do get to that point eventually. I train people to do that. In terms of plugs to finish, <laughs> if you have strike issues, whether it's ground contact or face contact, that would be the strike plan at adamyounggolf.com. That's the product for you. If it's more of a directional thing, I deal with both face and path in that as well as strategy. That is the accuracy plan at adamyounggolf.com. And John, what are your plugs? You can always check out my book, The Four Foundations of Golf. And I think maybe by the time this airs, my video course will be live. We'll see. But if it hasn't, the video course is forthcoming. 
But yeah, check out the four foundations of golf. Yeah, that's it. That's our spiel. We hit our hour and a half mark as usual. Thanks for everyone's support, your feedback, and we will see you next time with a new episode.